0: Welcome to the party, pals. I'm Phil Gawthorn, action movie screenwriter.
1: And I'm Liam Billingham, movie podcaster.
0: And Together, we host Die Hard on a Blank, a podcast from Sugar23 that explores the influence of Die Hard on action cinema. In each episode, we'll talk about one major action movie that was released after Die Hard.
1: Now, some of these movies take place on a bus. On a boat. Or even a
0: roadhouse. Uh, sure. The point is, these are action movies that couldn't exist without Die Hard, and its DNA is everywhere.
1: Die Hard on a Blank is a celebration of action movies, and a deep dive into the ways that Die Hard shaped the action genre.
0: So if you're a casual fan or an action movie Die Hard... Ooh, very nice. ...then Die Hard on a Blank is for you! Yes, you, personally!
1: Our first two episodes, which are all about the original 1988 masterpiece Die Hard, dropped December 21st, because Die Hard is a Christmas movie, wherever you get your podcasts. Phil, do the line.
0: Now we have a podcast. <laughs> ho, ho, ho. Welcome to Romare Cast, a podcast about Eric Romare, his films, his working methods, and anything else we want to talk about related to Eric Romare. I'm Sean Cineverotny.
1: Sean, you got to do that again with a little more like, a little more pizzazz, a little more pop. Oh, just A little okay. like, yeah, here we fucking oh, go. Oh, wait, is again. that really how
0: it was sounding? No, but Shit, it was, it's just,
1: I just think it's just a little more like, pretend you're starting a class off with a bunch of people who look cool. disinterested.
0: Yeah, yeah, <laughs> perfect. Welcome to Romare Cast, a podcast about Eric Romare, his films, his working methods, and anything else we want to talk about related to Eric Romare. I'm Sean Senevorotny.
1: And I'm Liam Billingham. Hi, Sean. How are you doing, Liam? It's been a minute. Good. It's been a minute, bud. We took a little break there. I don't know. Nobody needs to know this. We're back. <laughs> we're back, baby. And this week, it's, we're talking about Percival Le Galois, or Percival the Welshman. Eric Romare's sixth feature from the grand old year of
0: 1978. Yeah. Um, yeah. It's, uh,
1: it's gonna, this is going to be an episode. Um, before I'm we excited get there, though, to talk about it. So much to talk about. Um, before we get there, I might be more, I'm going to tell you the truth. I'm just going to, this time I'm going to preface this. I'm going to say that I was more excited to talk about, I'm more excited to talk about and think about this movie than I was to watch it.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah,
1: Uh, But before we get there, uh, let's do our our regular segment, Romare in the Air, where we talk about real-life connections we've made to Eric Romare and to the podcast. Uh, Special thanks to our our friend, uh, Austin Ratchless, for giving us this name idea. Sean, what are your uh, recent—now, we've had a gap in recording. We'll just say that. So some of the intel here, you know— could be a little off in terms of when it happens. But what's your, uh, any Romare's, any Romare's in the airs? Yeah.
0: Um, a very significant Romere in the air happened to me. So I'd been on, um, I went to Italy for my best friend's wedding and, um, the, in, you,
1: t- you went to Italy to watch the Julia Roberts 1997 I went to film Julia. "My Best yes, Friend's yes, yes. Wedding." Wow,
0: cool! <laughs> I didn't
1: know you were such a fan.
0: <laughs> it was uh, it was a really amazing experience, a re- um, in this like a really cool part of Italy called Bomarzo. So this like small town outside of Rome, and so we're there. Um, the The bride's uh, cousin, uh, her family's Italian, so she's got her Italian family over there, and it's the day after the wedding. I'm very hungover at the sort of goodbye luncheon that was there. And tsk, all of a sudden tsk, tsk, and I'm wearing um, all black and my Romare hat. <laughs> Just very hungover. Uh, behind me someone's taken a picture and I just turn around and and, uh, they're like, oh, sorry, I didn't want to disturb you. I just wanted to take a picture of your hat. I was wearing my Pauline at the Beach Romare hat uh, from Human Boy Worldwide. And then I was like, oh, are you a fan of Eric Romare? And then we just got into this like really, really long conversation about Eric Romare and the impact that his movies have had on us and on our lives. Um, It was amazing. This dude talked to me about... How Romare wow. was an influence on his band. So he was in an indie rock band. He had a song called Romare, where each verse is about a different Romare movie. Um, and it's, I don't know, it just made me really think a lot about how Romare has had like so many kinds of different impacts on people.
1: Right. Well, uh, I mean, that first of all, it's a really cool story. And like what, I think the the birth of this podcast came out of the fact that like, people uh, Romer's is one of those guys and this is largely true of French cinema because it's so popular but it's like there's like every, like the people that know French particularly French new wave cinema like they they can bond over it and then there's the subcategory of people who are like yeah but the best one is Eric Romare and it's yeah. like a whole whether that's true or not it doesn't really matter but it's there's this whole kind of like People, the people that know Eric Romare or ship Eric Romare, yeah. like really ship
0: yeah. Eric Romare. It's, um, you know, the way you hear there's like, there's like a band's band or a comedian's comedian. I really think right. Eric Romare is like a filmmaker's filmmaker.
1: And I have to say, I think philosophically, all I've ever wanted to be in life is a, uh, this is this. Mm-hmm. I've always, like I, I, like, I would love to be a comedian's comedian or something <laughs> like that. Like, that sounds pretty lit. Um, I noticed you sipping on a little cocktail over there. Oh, so, yes, yeah, so I
0: got like, my uh, Amaro from Italy then. What I loved about that is you kind of slurred at the beginning. You're like, <laughs> oh, my God, this is so good. Um, uh, but it was, um I, I'd love to at some point play that song on the show because it's just really interesting. And... Uh, then we started like a text whatsapp relationship so now like we'll text each other like the minute he got home he sent me a picture of his entire romere collection um Whoa, i sent him a has picture he
1: listened of, to the podcast
0: oh well i sent him the podcast he's like i'm definitely checking this out and better uh,
1: goddamn check
0: it. is he yeah, italian he is italian i'm gonna follow up with Michela uh and see if he's checked out this episode but Michaela, if you're listening shout out to you man
1: um that's great that's very cool uh yeah, that's also totally rad and random and and speaks to like, you know, I got to shout out to Human Boy Worldwide for the very, very unique reason that like, look, I've be only recently become a hat guy. I'm wearing my drug church hat right now, a band that we both love but didn't know that the other one loved it. Mm-hmm. I mean, you've know, loved them a lot longer than I have, but I got into them this year. But. The nice thing, I've gotten like compliments. I was in a bar recently and someone was like, that's a cool drug church hat. And it led to like a 20 minute conversation about like other post hardcore. And like, I was with a guy and he was like, I don't know what the fuck, what is God, What is what are you guys talking about? Because I was like, Another oh, you ba- like- Another band's
0: know, band, drug church. You like
1: Soul Glow, cool, or whatever yeah. it happened to be, right? But uh, just the people who've seen, like a guy at Disneyland being like, yo, is that an Eric Romare hat? And I was like, why are you working at Disneyland? Well, get out of here. <laughs> um
0: there's something to be said about advertising our interests right you know by putting on merch um it 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 creates a community or an invitation to a conversation
1: and the only sports hat i've ever worn as an adult is a boston red Sox hat which was my dad's and i don't it's gross now because it's super old but like no one is coming up to me (laughs) and being like oh you like the boston red Sox?" because like everyone wears that hat but when you have a hat that's like Pauline Laplace and on the back it says uh you know comedies and proverbs on it. That's like a much more niche market, mm-hmm. you know, yeah. which is cool. It's 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 so niche that it almost inspires a conversation, which is really good. Yeah. Cool. Yeah. I don't have a romere in the air story, but this is the first time that we've had a chance to talk about this, which is that the previous iteration of the podcast feed that you're on Uberbusters was featured in an article from New York Mag. Woo, which was woo, woo by Bill Gay Berry, who is a great, like maybe my favorite film critic. He was on Uber Busters. Sean was also on Uber Busters. That episode is in the feed. And I bring it up only to say, it was a little confusing in the article because they were, he was like, I don't know if the show still exists. Well, it still exists. It's just about Eric Romare now with a different name. But all those episodes, including the one that Sean was on, including the one that Bill Gay was on, are further back in the feed. And I'm going to do some kind of online curation so that you can get access to everything but please go back and listen this is just a more esoteric version (laughs) of a very esoteric podcast (laughs) but we covered who do we talk about john cassavetes
0: philip seymour hoffman philip
1: seymour hoffman batman that was batman and then uh the 16 films of akira kurosawa and toshiro mifune and at some point we might come back and do a uh like a Warren Beatty season. That's always been something we've that's talked cool. about, too. That's cool, yeah. But we'll see, we'll see. Right now, it's 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 all Romare all the time. Uh, okay, but that was cool. I don't have any good Romare's in the air, um, but I continue to be an advocate for Eric Romare and continue to talk about him, so that's good. Sean, let's talk about Percival. Yeah. So, should I give the Wikipedia? I think, wow, this movie, man. Um So many things to say. Should we start with what this movie is about?
0: Yeah, I think I I start there. This is a movie that like, I think the more context that you have for the base of what this movie is would allow for more enjoyment. I will say that when I first started watching it, I went into it like completely blind. Um, And I mean, we'll talk a little bit about this, but this movie definitely took me a few tries to sort of. Watch through fully. And, um, Which is
1: unusual for you. You're yeah, a general. Yeah,
0: yeah. No, definitely. It's like um, my movie. I did not watch this movie with my usual movie going. Um, yeah. And like the the rules I set for myself and how I watch a movie. And uh, but I don't know for this one, I just really wasn't able to. But I, st- I started the movie and then um, I'd watched about 20 minutes. And then that night, I was just like a little too tired. And I was like, I actually want to read more about First of all, uh, and like who, what this is all based on. And that actually really helped with my, um, experience of the movie. Then just going so in completely blind. So you watched it blind. over
1: a couple nights with bits of research. I watched
0: it over four nights and just rewatched some scenes, uh, while driving, not recommending that to anyone. Don't,
1: don't tell people uh, well, that. Well, not while driving, You're but gonna like get at the canceled. red lights,
0: at the red lights,
1: um, and, at the red
0: lights. um, but yeah, no, this is a movie that took me like essentially four sittings to, um, to complete.
1: And let's save our opinions of the movie, because I think I I think part of the appeal of this conversation, at least for me, is like, is my feelings about this film going to change as we talk about it? Because Mm -hmm. like they are hashtag it's complicated. I did the exact opposite with this film, which is I decided to wait until last night to watch it. I did no reading about it. um, And I have to say that that. There's no right way to watch this movie. By the way, we should say that until recently, this film was on Mubi, which is a great platform. But we both watched it on Tubi, where it is weirdly available. I only had two commercial breaks the entire two hour and twenty minutes. That's wild.
0: I I definitely had a lot more commercial breaks. Um, What's fascinating about watching it on Tubi for everyone that's going to watch it on Tubi? I, I really love when I see art films not on Criterion or Movie, um, because you get to see how an art film is marketed to a more general audience. So when you're scrolling through Amazon Prime, when you're scrolling through Tubi, you'll notice the the, the key art and the way a movie is sort of uh, marketed. And when you see Percival, you see a blood-red poster with Percival in Chainmail in Battle. It's battle like a gladiator ready, movie. Like a gladiator sort of movie. And imagine thinking you're going to be watching that and you're watching Eric Romare's Percival. Uh, so it's which, real, real interesting.
1: Percival is an Eric Romare film from the year of 1978. It is a quote-unquote historical drama, which is a complicated um, thing just to say in and of itself. And the film... This is there are many different plot synopses for this movie. So I'm going to just give you the Wikipedia one cuz it's the easiest. The film chronicles Percival's knighthood, maturation and eventual peerage amongst the knights of the Round Table and also contains brief episto- episodes, excuse me, from the story of uh, go on, and the crucifixion of Christ, which is an in is inaccurate actually. <laughs> That's not what those passages at the end of the film are actually detailing in my point of view. Um look, this uh, Eric Romare was obsessed with uh with with not actually with the story of Percival, but in fact the language and the verse of this story, which is based on a very, very old. I believe, twelfth century mm-hmm. uh, French text by a writer named Christian de Troyes, who wrote a wrote this. Ver- never finished the story of Percival. It is uh, considered one of the first Grail stories, mm-hmm. and um, is the first one that actually contains reference to the Grail. Though the Grail is not elevated in this story as it often is um, in. Biblical stories and the sphere yeah. that has the drop of blood on it is also <laughs> significant, which uh in 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 Catholic tradition has been de-emphasized, uh, you know, the, the blood of Christ de-emphasized, and more emphasis on the grail that will allow you to live forever, which mm-hmm. we could probably have a whole conversation about that. But I'm I don't think I'm smart enough uh I'm up on my Christian stuff, my Catholic stuff yeah, I mean, uh, uh, to, to really talk about. As a that as
0: a Buddhist watching these movies, you know, these are not like things that i'm super familiar with so like you know right. the 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 sphere and the the spear and the blood um is something that you know i didn't know was like a part of like uh christian or catholic or like you know religious um well, mythology sp-
1: yeah and, they speared christ to kill him that's ultimately mm-hmm. how he died on the cross um couple interesting facts about the movie and i and i think i think we want to get through to be honest some of this like throat clearing pretty quickly to get to what we think this film is about um, or what we want to talk about this film. So uh, this is not Eric Romare's first film about Percival. Did you know that, Sean?
0: I did not know that.
1: For a period of time, he made educational films and he made a 30-minute film about the story of Percival and and the Grail. So this wasn't the first time he'd done it. Um, That Mm. film is a little more documentary in nature and as I understand it was so low budget that it wasn't even cast. It was just like... Is it narration with...
0: Because uh, I with, understand, with still I, images. I, I, was,
1: I don't think it's possible to find it. I don't know that it exists, but he did. You know, it's worth remembering that before he was a filmmaker, he was a teacher and he taught this text to his students, you know, and he was sort of obsessed with it. I think, as a lover of all things Gallic, of all things French, and also, I think, uh, as a teacher and uh, as a Catholic, I mean, a profoundly Catholic artist, you know, um, yeah. If, such, such a I I feel like many times in this conversation we're gonna be like what is, what is what is this movie um all right let me oh no Sean I lost my notes oh there they are okay um this film was shot in a studio which is a rarity for Eric Romare mm-hmm. and, it, and it was planned for two years including teaching everyone uh how to ride horses how to do the text uh, I, apparently there was some sword uh, training, but I find that hard to believe considering no one in the movie looks like they know what they're doing when it comes to horse riding or sword fighting in the film. It's very fascinating. Well, when
0: um, so one of the things like uh, when when we see the sword fighting that happens in the movie, I was actually like really, really taken with the, the fighting because I was seeing, I mean, this is what I think is really, really interesting about this movie is Eric Romare has a way of making uh no matter what era he's filming in always feel present always feel contemporary i feel like there's like a contemporary quality in this movie and like with the fighting um or like a like a a feeling of like a a reality of some kind or a truthfulness of like the way things were and the way things are and with the fighting i felt like oh yeah this is what it's looks probably looks like to actually fight with these swords it's awkward and scary like i agree they're really like strike like i was it's some of the most non-bullshit looking sword fighting that i've ever seen in a movie that you're seeing play out in long takes and they're like really like coming down hard with these these swords
1: which are heavy yeah uh yeah no i think there is something um realistic and like you know, you watch a film like Gladiator, for mm-hmm. example, and everyone is like, you know, or get Mel Gibson's Braveheart. Uh, Mel Gibson, an interesting filmmaker to compare to Eric Rohmer in their Catholicism. Yeah, I don't know if I want to yeah. go down that road, but um, yeah, you're right. And the the, the, the thing is that chainmail and those weapons. Everyone was heavy and sweaty all the time, and they certainly weren't like kicking ass and cutting off a hundred heads because mm-hmm. those swords weigh fucking thirty pounds or whatever it is, right? Yeah. So it's wild. Um, very quickly. Uh, the, these, let's talk about who worked on this movie. It was written and directed by Eric Romare based on Percival, the story of the grail by Christian de Troyes. It's produced by Barbette Schroeder and Margaret Menegos, who produced some of his other films. Large cast. I'm not going to get into all the names. I'm just going to give you really three that are significant. Um, Fabrice Lucini, who appears in... The Four Adventures of Renette and Mirabelle as the ornery shopkeeper later in the film plays Percival. This is 10 years, mm-hmm. or not 10 years, but eight years before that. André du Soleil plays Gawan, who uh, has a strange passage in the middle of the film, which is, candidly, where I really started to check out. Uh, <laughs> and then two major returning cast members, Marie Riviere, who is in The Aviator's Wife and also will appear in... The Green Ray, which we're going to talk about next week, and Anne-Laurene Marie, who is one of the women in Aviator's Wife and Boyfriends and Girlfriends. She's quite young in this film. She plays the girl with the long sleeves in Mm -hmm. the go-on section of the film. And he sort of surrounded himself with a a troop of actors who would later work with him on, um, on many films. There's an interesting passage in the... Let me just pick it up here. Antoine de Baquet and Noel Herbe Oh, you can't see it because of my Percival background. How do I get it? <laughs> oh, no! Um, there's an interesting passage in the book about how they would all just hang out at his Films de Lusange office and, like, shoot the shit and work on the dialogue. Like, he really built, like, a theater troupe.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah. Well, what's so cool about the casting of this movie, too, is... Um, it's him working with like a totally new crop of actors, you know. Yes. With the, with the six moral tales, like after La Collection he was working with like big French actors, Jean Louis Tritign- uh, uh Trintignant, yeah, It yeah, yeah. um, became
1: kind of like hot for a minute there. Yeah,
0: Mm-hmm. Um, uh, Jean Claude uh, Briale in uh, *Claire's Knee*, and uh, with this movie, it's like it really feels like a post 68 movie. Like he's working with like the young people with like the, the people that grew out of what, um, the, all the changes that were happening um, during that period of time in France and in the rest of the world. So it's like really feels like almost like a post hippie movie and he's surrounded himself with like interesting young people to be like the face of this movie and like to sort of build this troop out. And, like, I just, I can't imagine what it was like shooting this movie. You know, it really feels like there's, like, an atmosphere of, like, uh, creativity, but also, like, experimentation. Like, this is, like, an interesting thing to imagine, like, a group of, you know, 20-somethings all together in this studio working on this, like, fairly, like, arch presentation of of, uh, this story.
1: Uh, there's a lot to add to there. Yeah, I mean, the way it's described is he's running around like a lunatic uh, trying to get everything done. He had, like, very strong fidelity to what the costuming was supposed to look like, the way that people present them. A lot to talk about. I mean, this is, like, a directorial uh, masterwork, even if you don't... Or an remarkable commitment to your own thing that you're yeah. doing in the film. Uh, the cinematography in this film was by Nestor Almendros, who was losing his fucking mind because he was like, we have to... they. They, had to, they built everything. Nothing in this film yeah. is real. And I think that that presented really unique challenges to a guy who is usually like, let's throw a few floodlights out and let the sun take care of the rest.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah, um, yeah.
1: Edited by Cécile Décousis, de Gous- de and the music is by Guy Robert. Uh, Le Films de Lussange produced it, uh, and it was distributed by Gaumont. It was financed in France, and he was criticized by the Actors Union in France for not paying people very well but also uh, he did a year of unpaid rehearsals and he kind of went after them. It's detailed in the book because he was like, look, I could have made this movie in Germany. I made it here. Like, I'm still supporting the French cinema. Mm -hmm. I'm still employing French actors. Like, Back off. It's very interesting, you know. There's yeah, like there's the so background much drama about.
0: surrounding. Yeah, the there's production. a lot, and
1: there's the book again. This biography is wonderful, and it and it goes into detail. Listen to the ASMR that ice just crunching. Uh, the film runs a fleet two hours and twenty minutes.
0: Um, his longest movie
1: by a. Yeah by, by 40 liked. minutes so probably. typically
0: yeah typically Romere's films run about 90 minutes and this one's uh two hours and 20 minutes and um, I'd say like this is one where I uh, I was feeling it I was feeling the length
1: I was feeling the length and I, I, I look
0: and I feel ashamed when that happens you know I feel I ashamed well. when I feel the length
1: um, so let's I, I, pause there because I, I you know I, I've done a I've done a fair amount of movie podcasting and the whole time watching this and, and talking about movies and thinking about movies and, and the whole time watching this movie uh, and I think that we can get in, well, we're going to talk, you know, this season is about the production methods of the film and we'll get into that. But I think that the, 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 a great way to frame this conversation that we're about to have mm-hmm. is through the lens of like, what was the impact on us through the approach that eric romare made to this film like like how did how did the directorial choices and decisions that he makes in making this film affect us as audience members Mm -hmm. so i guess let's start like i think we should start with something that i wanted to save till the end but i think we should get it out there did you did you like this movie
0: this is this movie goes beyond like and dislike um this movie to me it's like I, I'm fascinated by it. The whole time I was watching, I was like, this is, everything about this movie is really interesting in terms of the uh, almost Brechtian distancing that that occurs with this sort of very theatrical, artificial look. Um, the performances are incredibly controlled and, like, really, um, I don't know, they're, like, 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 hyper-specific in a way that, like, feels, like, natural and completely unnatural in a way that's, like, um, really unique. Uh, the movie, it's just, I don't know. It's, it's, it's an intellectual curiosity to me that I'm really interested in, but I can't like, you know, if I had to, I don't know, would I really want to watch it again? Not unless I really wanted to try to like analyze and break down like a lot of the different things that he does for sort of deeper research into Romare, but um, it's not a movie that I'd say I particularly enjoy. So, like, famously with my friends, I always joke about, like, like I don't fuck with Game of Thrones at all um, because my joke is that I don't like watching things from that period of time, whether it's fictional or not. It just, everything looks dirty. You mean, like, horses and, muddy, and dragons. Horses and dragons and medieval time stuff. I'm just, like, super not into that kind of world, and I generally... Um,
1: that's interesting Avoid because that you do love going to the restaurant and cosplay medieval times. <laughs> right. It's just really your, every Friday, right? You have a reservation for tonight. Let me, you said some interesting things there that make me realize we haven't set the expectation for the audience for this movie. And so let me attempt, if you don't mind, and yeah. please, like I want you to jump in, but let me attempt to talk about, you talk, mentioned some things like Brechtian and alienating and all these things. And, and I think that that is a useful and catch-all way to talk about films on theater, which you know, based on our experience together, I have a very, very unique relationship to like films, plays and shit. Because when we worked together, I kind of built a whole class around like making movies in a black box setting or like, dealing with the idea of like, what happens if you make a movie in a black box? Like mm-hmm. what, what is that movie and how does it work? So this movie really affected me on, like it really hit me on that level. And I had, I wish I'd seen it years ago when I designed this thing. Anyway, so I'm going to attempt to explain the movie. Okay, this is a historical drama about a very famous knight. However, for reasons that are, I think that it, there are reasons that are complicated. And if you were alive, we could ask him. Eric Romer chooses to shoot this film in a very, very distinct way. It's worth mentioning very briefly that in 1974, Robert Bresson made a movie called Lancelot du Lac, Mm -hmm. which is a, a film I actually have only seen portions of. But that is also a night drama shot in the hills and mountains in, I believe, France and Belgium. It's beautiful. It's expressionistic. It takes advantage of the natural landscape. And whether in response to that film or not... Eric Romare does the exact opposite. This film is shot in a studio. It is shot with very, very artificial-looking sets. There are basically two sets. There are there's a castle set that gets mm-hmm. used as for every sort of for every castle uh, is that castle. Every castle is the same. Uh, he walks around the same trees uh, time and time again when he's in the forest he uh the the medieval set and the town sets are all exactly the same sometimes the color is changed they are very obviously and intentionally fake yeah so the first note i took while watching this film was this is a play the play consists of really the film of ultimately five or six characters who appear and reappear throughout the course of the film and the rest of the film is a chorus telling the story of what's happening with musical in that kind of loot and kind of ridiculous mm-hmm. medieval, <laughs> almost comically stupid medieval times way, right? Like it's very silly yeah. and completely unironic and uh, admirable And which makes it kind of beautiful. Yeah.
0: Naive. Yeah. Yes. It's, exactly. it's, it's completely unironic, totally sincere, um, What approach. What,
1: what, it's very, and it's very much that,
0: Uh, Another interesting thing that he does that also feels like a little bit theatrical is characters will narrate their own actions in their own voice. So as if being read from a story, they'll say things like he took out his sword and laid it uh, uh, in his sheath or something like that. As he does it. As he does it.
1: And so there is a, and again, this is partially because, uh, not partially, this is really true. Romare loved the language of this original verse poem, unfinished poem. Uh, It is written in what's called octosyllabic verse.
0: Oh, what's that? Which
1: is eight-syllable lines. Okay. So every line has eight syllables. Now, I think to be like very, very, to make this as understandable as possible, when you read Shakespeare, Shakespeare is, and I'm going to, this is literally contradicted the second I say it, but most Shakespeare is written in what's known as iambic, pentameter pentameter which is 10 line 10 syllable lines right and they i am that that expression follows the natural pattern of a iambic little bit which is ta-dum ta-dum to be or not to be Mm -hmm. right whatever the case is so this is verse right but it's eight syllable instead of 10 now i know nothing about how it's supposed to be emphasized. I know about the Shakespeare stuff cuz I went to theater school, right? But so I understand like the way that, you know, Shakespeare is meant to be, you can, you know, follow the tadum pattern or you can reverse it or you can, you know, there's different terminology and different things and as a Shakespearean actor, you analyze that verse. Romero is more interested in the verse component of this film than anything else. And so, having the actors narrate what they're doing while they do it is his attempt to bring the verse to life.
0: That's really cool. Um, that I I would love to now rewatch the movie, kind of and like really listen for an octosyllabic. <laughs> well, I'd <laughs> yeah. like to rewatch scenes from the movie, right? Um, and uh, to kind of listen for that because I mean, you, when you hear the language, like you know, it's a movie that's very unlike other Romare movies. That still really does feel like a Romare movie. You know, there's there's a lot of the qualities of it that is in, yes. inherently Romarian, um, and maybe we're experiencing it and seeing it in like a little bit of different ways, but um, but it's there.
1: And, and to be clear, there's a couple of things. I wrote down this note. Uh, it's a play, but it's still about young, dumb people. Yeah. Naive people that don't understand. Yeah, the
0: world. I, uh, There's a great letterboxd review that I'd, um, that I'd read where they described, um, Percival's, uh, youthful valor and naivete. And I, I was like, oh, that's a great way of like, cause you know, I mean, I, Fabrice Luciani, I think is. Such an incredible actor, and this is the first. Um, he's in um, uh, Full Moon in Paris, um, which is another Romero film that movie. he has I a, seen that one a lead in, a long time. in. Yeah, so he's got a leading role in that. But this is the first one that he's like, you know, he he carries this movie, and he has a very certain kind of quality to him where it's that innocence, but also there's like a, a ruthlessness that's there too. Um, that that yeah, uh, he's, he's completely unaware of.
1: Yeah, he's really yeah. ruthless and he sucks at especially at the beginning. I read one review that was like, first of all, the weenie knight. Because he kind <laughs> of is like a bit of a fucking weenie, right? Yeah. He's obnoxious and annoying.
0: Well um, well, that's what's so that's what I love about um certain kinds of period pieces, and especially like this way of approaching a period piece, is like the casting changes your frame of how you watch the film. So you can make this story. You could cast, like, Heath Ledger when he was alive. I mean, I know he was in that other, you know, Knight's movie, Knight's Tale or whatever, right? So I'm just imagining it. But imagine, with, like... like,
1: the Queen music? Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah Like, yeah. imagine,
0: like, you know, this was a movie done in a totally different style, and Heath Ledger is your Percival. That's a completely different movie than when you see Fabrice Luchani with, like... He communicates, like, this youthfulness, but he's so kind of, like, f- like a little frail-looking. Yeah. Um, sort of, but then like, quote
1: feminine in a, a sense. little a little like, fem- yeah you know whatever that means like there's a little bit like he's not your image of a knight you're not right. like that guy's a he's, real knight he's
0: not your image of a knight and uh but he has an intensity to him and that's yep, something and that he brings scary. to every role yeah
1: he almost rapes a woman in the yeah. beginning of the film it's it's really sketchy
0: um well i i i feel like it's almost like it's we are meant to infer that like what truly happened is is rape, but the way it was communicated in stories at the time is he kissed her five, six, yeah. seven times. But really, You're right. You're right. yeah.
1: Yeah. And so, as you let's, you know, as we did with our episode, it's like hard to talk about this movie. As we did with our episode Unlock Collection News, we kind of broke the style down into yeah. a few categories. So now that you have the framework for understanding that it's a bit like theater. Uh, we should talk a little bit about our, about our categories, which are sound, image, and frame, edit, and directing. Now, I think there's not as much to say about sound yeah. as there are in some of the other categories. This mm-hmm. movie is wall-to-wall music and singing. I think that's important. Which in is a, which that, is
0: something to say about sound that's so different from his every other movie that he's ever done. Right. Yeah. Right.
1: It's very musical, um, a little repetitive, in that we hear the same things. We feel like we hear what's being happening on screen. Over and over again, a little bit, or like they'll they'll tell you what's going to happen, mm-hmm. or they'll 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 be a bit of a journey. Uh, characters speak their actions as narrators whilst acting them out again yeah. as a way for him to preserve the verse. And again, it's octosyllabic eight syllable lines to reinforce the poetry of the original text. First of all, the story of the Grail.
0: With the uh, the sound, particularly with the music, one thing that was uh, my wife and I when we were watching, I had noticed is like, oh God, you, know,
1: you made Christine watch.
0: <laughs> it was it was actually the one of my most fun movie watching experiences where I'm watching it and she's like doing stuff next to me on the couch while it's going on. And, she, and she's uh, like, Sean,
1: wake up. There's some like, like Sorry.
0: <laughs> oh, well, yesterday she kept having to like wake me up for sure while I was watching yeah. it. But um, there's a lot of like fun commentary along the way. But one thing that she pointed out, she's like, oh, it's interesting. Like not everyone's like, like a singer really. Like we're not hearing just like beautiful voices. And I think that's again that like commitment to a certain kind of reality where it's not like casting the voice. Like you're hearing like, singing of like a certain style and you're hearing it good singing, but you're not hearing like musical voices. You're not hearing it in the way that you would hear a musical. And it's not cast in a way where I think like, if uh, you're making a musical, you're really casting for voices. And that's no, not, not really what's happening easy. here. No, Like no, you absolutely. hear some like singers that are, that are not great. So, and I, I really love that. Cause it really adds to this feeling of like, Oh yes. Yeah, like a chorus of, of folks in that period of time. That's like narrating this story.
1: No, totally. And you know, there's a this is sort of jumping ahead, but there's an animated sequence in this film. A very brief yeah. moment where there's blood on the ground and it's clearly animated and he really didn't want to do it. Oh. Because it's not he would hold the claim or he, I, no, he wouldn't, but he's often looked at as a as a document documentary filmmaker in that he's trying very hard to like for what you capture on screen is what the movie is. So he's not a guy who would be interested in like a split diop. Well, maybe he'd be interested in that, but he wouldn't be interested in a visual effect or he wouldn't be interested right. in like ADR. He wants to get it all in the can, so to speak, on set for real and do it that way, right? So the But the idea of making a historical drama that is all on set is so antithetical to how a period drama, historical... Like, this movie really made me question, like, God, all of the historical dramas we watch are such bullshit. Like, yeah. Because this points to the artifice of itself yeah. in a way that...
0: That makes it feel more real than any other historical right, drama that you've period, ever watched. Right, and most historical
1: yeah. dramas work so hard to make you forget that you're mm-hmm. watching a historical drama, whereas yeah. this, this, paradoxically, feels like both the present and the past at the exact same time.
0: Yeah. Um, the, uh, you know, um, uh, it's yes, interesting please. about animation. Um, at a certain point, they had discussed rotoscoping the movie. Um, really? Rotoscoping being the technique of um, uh, creating animation out of uh, live action footage by like uh, drawing the cells around that. Um, this is the technique that was used by Ralph Bakshi in the 70s as well. Oh, I love those for films. The, uh, for like the Lord of the Rings movies and everything like that. So at a certain point in time, that was a possibility ultimately... Um, Deciding not to go with it because with each new layer of animation, the quality degrades. So he didn't want to degrade the quality um, as much I also either. just
1: don't think it's ultimately his style. No, for right? sure. Yeah. Um,
0: but so, the idea was scenic backgrounds. So inserting real life characters into scenic backgrounds is the kind of like central idea for the uh, aesthetic of the film.
1: Yeah, and, and that's a good... I think transition into talking about the image and the frame. And I think we both have so many things that we want to talk about that like, we're almost like, like listening to <laughs> each other, but I'm like, but wait, let me read this bit to you. So can I, can I read a bit to yes, you please. about this? Okay. <clears throat> so, so a couple quick things. He was, uh, meaning Romare, primarily concerned with the historical accuracy of the costumes and especially the coats of mail whose fabrication kept a whole workshop busy. Uh, Romer asked his actors to keep hands spread wide In the manner of Romanesque miniatures And he tried to evoke the style of the period By foregoing perspective Which did not yet exist in the art of the time Another thing that's really interesting He wanted to avoid any excessively visible artifice And allow his actors to move around within the framework It's here that architecture comes in With the help of Jean-Pierre kohatz Who had been Francois Truffaut's official set designer Ram- Romero transposed onto the horizontal plane Romanesque painting's effect of vertical curvature. In the middle so of the circular set. set- yeah. yeah, where true trees represented the forest in tradition, in the accord with the medieval metonymic tradition. A metonym is something that represents something else. So, like, when you say the word press and you're referring to the larger, like, media apparatus, you can use the word press, right? I had to look that up. <laughs> First of all, travels also follows an elliptic, elliptical itinerary. Romare insisted that what guided me was that this curved space provided... Br- Excuse me. What guided me was that this curved space projected onto a horrible horizontal plane in perspective exists. It is that of the Romanesque church of the apse. Mm. One can move around the altar so that my set with remains within the truth of the Middle Ages, which is not only plain representation on miniatures but also architecture. Wow,
0: that's so, uh, that's really interesting, and also just like it, it, it's we see this starting to happen in film again now, too, with just, like, the way things are getting filmed with, like, LED backdrops and, like, this idea of, like, curvature.
1: Oh, well, I think it's worth TL... to Yeah, like, the volume, which is yeah. what Star Wars uses to shoot, like, the Mandalorian. I think it's worth summarizing that very quickly and saying that, like, he was trying to impose the sort of representations and pictorial designs of medieval art onto the film so that the film never felt more modern Mm -hmm. than the period it represents. And yet he's using present day technology and techniques and, and the history of film into that. And this I think comes back to his central idea, which is that like film is the highest art form because it allows us to represent the world in its most natural way, which for him was a Catholic idea, right? Like, somewhat problematically, you know, if Godard, for example, is the great, you know, and you can speak to this better than me, but it's sort of the great Marxist filmmaker who, you know, follows the edict of Brecht, which is uh, art is a hammer with which to shape the world. I think Romare would say, no, art is a reflection of the world. And he goes to great such great pains to represent the artistic style of the medieval time medieval period and and And
0: yet that is how we know that world and therefore let's represent it through the way we are familiar with it
1: and yet all art is especially that kind of art is not a reflection of what the real world was like right Right. so it's like he's you know and there's things in the film you pointed out the combat feels real or xyz will feel real but again it's very romantic what he's doing he's romantically trying to recreate uh a historic French text in the way it would have been presented using the most modern technology available to him. Mm-hmm. And I think that would make it fascinating. And by the way, just very quickly to come back to the theater of it, essentially, what he's done is created a movie that is a photograph of Theater in the Round. Theater in the Round mm-hmm. being the idea that the audience is one place and they turn to various places to see what's happening. In the play, essentially the theater is always, excuse me, essentially the camera is always in the same place and the camera is moving to accommodate that perspective.
0: Yeah, yeah, whoa.
1: And there's long takes in this film, you know? It is long takes and it is, uh, he cuts only when necessary. He often cuts in the way he usually does, which is he'll cut right into the middle of a scene and immediately the conflict is present. Mm -hmm. As much as we say it's a long film, it doesn't feel terribly edited. No, oh, it doesn't. Yeah. Feel, it doesn't feel like terribly long or baggy, but it is a long film.
0: There's a lot of the the usual editing techniques, but you know what ends up, and I wouldn't even say padding it, but like part of the the inherent style uh, is then you have these same cuts, but you also have the chorus that's introducing the scene. Right, you have like the person that's about to narrate their action into it. So like in a in a, another Romare movie, it's like gets right into it, and then we're already there. Like you know. And the the dialogue is like uh at the beginning of this dialogue it's like cuts directly into it, and it's still there's a preamble that needs to yep. exist before the scene still kind of begins proper
1: yeah it at times he he's he's very good at cutting right into the action, or you know I'm thinking particularly of the scene uh the Gawan sequence at the end of the film uh or close to the end of the film, where uh uh the daughter is expressing her her desire for him to win in the race and it kind of cuts right into the middle of the conflict between go this young woman and her father um and it feels as though we've we we know what's going to happen so he's nice enough to sort of like dice that out so we don't spend more time hearing about a story that we understand um did you see did the, you
0: see the green knight
1: the david lowry yeah. film I watched the first so that's few minutes about of
0: it go on, on a right? plane.
1: But I haven't, no, I haven't seen okay. the whole thing yet. It was, I started it on a plane. I was like, this isn't the vibe for this. Right. Watching it on yeah. a plane with yeah. like a loud noise. Did you see it?
0: No, I haven't seen it. But now I'm like kind of curious, like if I want to continue further down this Arthurian uh, sort of tales, uh, you know, watching that in relation to this. Now just like being a little more familiar with uh, Go On and like, I believe.
1: There's a go lot of. Like, yeah. There's a lot of grail shit mm-hmm. beyond Indiana Jones and the Last Crusade. Yeah. Yeah. Um, uh, so I feel like the, the next category that we're going to talk about here is, is directing, which I think is the area that, that, it, that is the most to be explored. But we've covered a lot of this stuff. Um, yeah. there it's, so one thing that's interesting in the biography is that they, don't, they say this movie is not a literary adaptation. It's a literal one.
0: That's cool. Well,
1: Essentially, he just takes the text and represents it, I as mean, opposed to interprets it.
0: That's a really interesting way to approach doing a historical drama. It's like this is this is what's there, this is the story. I'm not changing anything. We're going to keep a lot of text as verse. Um, yeah. But here is how it's being presented to you, and like you kind of accept it.
1: And this is where the challenge of this film comes in, as a film, and a great way to talk about, like, you know, the stupid cliche of like, what's a film and what's a movie, which I think is stupid. But uh, so, just a quick note: two thirds of the language of the original poem remain intact. Yeah, two thirds, pretty impressive because yeah. it's unfinished, but it's long. Um, and one thing that's interesting about the text is that at a certain point, it leaves Perceval and joins Gawain, and we have this interlude. That's about four, 20, 25 minutes. Because Percival of the
0: film. loses the fight,
1: loses the fight, right? Yeah, and uh, is invited into the court and is like, "Nah, I'm out." And then we spend some time with Gawan and his little adventure, which uh, I found to be the the from a for, for, whenever you watch a movie, you're going and expecting a certain experience, right? And mm-hmm. like last night, for example, when I watched this, I was like, "Oh, I kind of want to watch something that's like easy to watch." That's not what I was watching, <laughs> right? So. I felt from like a film enjoyment perspective, right? Not like an art, whatever you want to call it. I was like, this Gawon section makes no sense. But then I think, as as a part of the film, but he's literally transposing the text of the poem into
0: the film. Right. So like in the poem, there must be a portion where it's about Gawon. And so that's what we're seeing over here. Yeah. Right.
1: And, you know, one of the things that's really interesting about Romare is, and this is probably one of his most expensive films, right? His movies cost very, very, very little to make overall, right? But he always proceeds from a place of poverty. Mm -hmm. And what I mean when I say that is like, He is foundationally like, I don't want to spend a lot of money. It's all about the idea or what I can achieve with less, 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 right? And it's interesting how that extends to an adaptation, which, you know, a lot of his scripts are original, right? I can't think of many that are adaptations beyond this. Maybe Marquite O, are one that came before this. But, like, this is literally like, I have the text. I'm making a movie of it. Yeah. It is a little impoverished in the sense that he's not like, and how do I make it exciting or new? It's like, how do I just directly transpose this? Yeah, yeah. So
0: with this being like this studio movie where he's, um, you know, doing all this different work for it, um, this is the movie where he really started to figure out, like, what can I cut? How can I like pare things down? And so when he's talking about the production of the comedies and Proverbs movies, um, which follow this, which follow this movie, and that's uh, what we started out with for the most part with the beginning of the show was, um, you know, Aviator's Wife, a lot of those lessons he learned from this movie and his experience doing this bigger movie and already trying to be like, well, what do I need and what don't I need? and starting to pare things down from there. So when we see his later work, it almost feels like truly a reaction to to the production of this movie.
1: It's a really interesting thing to to think about in terms of his progression as an artist and Mm -hmm. a filmmaker. And by the way, I would say the attempt, the idea, again, grow up, raise Catholic, the idea of taking the text and trying to transpose it in a literal way feels very Catholic to me. And Mm -hmm. I actually think that from my point of view, I'm very aesthetically attracted to impoverished modes of production. Like I, and I don't know if that's Catholic. I don't want to, that's a ridiculous claim to make, but it's not shocking. Like I, I, and I said this earlier, I tried to make like a theater film class. I don't even know exactly what it was, it ended up being that sort of like used, used, theater, uh, film, essentially film theater in a black box setting. And this movie has some components that, you know, one thing we didn't mention is that because this is essentially a filmed play, he respects continuity and linearity very, very strongly. So a scene plays... From beginning to end very rarely with cuts and if there's like there's a moment for example in the film where like they skip the meal portion of the dinner and really what happens is there's no cut the actors just have a few bites and then a man turns to him and he's like it's time for me to go to bed and it's like it's 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 um representative it's not natural it's not rooted in the naturalism or realism of cinema You know, I would say that like cinema is not realistic. It's natural, right? Like, because that's my, you know, sort of easy definition of this. And this goes far. This is not natural at all. This is very like narrator driven. You're at a remove. uh, You're watching something being represented as opposed to psychologizing its reality and living in it.
0: But in a lot of ways, I feel like it is natural. Like you have all this artifice in it. Mm. And what really... Movies like this and, um, uh, Maurice Pilots Van Gogh and like a lot of like period, uh, Germans
1: Caravaggio is an interesting example of this. A lot of these like
0: period pieces that I really like. And, um, particularly with this one is it's this time period that, um, we'll never fully know. We'll never fully understand. We are seeing a representation of it, but the way he approaches performance, um, and even just through his casting, we really get a sense of like, um, I don't see these people. I don't see Percival as see as feeling like a person from the past that existed. I see Percival the way, like I might meet somebody like that now. Um, it feels very mm. uh, rooted in like, just like a, like a human quality that exists no matter Um, what time period you're in. It actually, watching a movie like this makes you realize that the past is no different from the present, right? Like we might come across people that remind us of the characters in this movie and they're not too far off and it's not really a huge jump what the past was to who we are now as people. And I think I I feel that with the acting.
1: Can I read a quote to you from Eric Romare about recreating the fidelity to a period? To me... Fidelity to a period is fidelity to what remains of the period. It is not a futile quest for the period and for what... It is not a futile quest for what the period in itself might have been.
0: Mm. Yeah.
1: Which is to say... And this is reflected... You know, I wrote down in my image and frame notes, and maybe it should be a directing notes, Bresson again. I think there's something Bressonian in the acting style of this film where the actors are emoting, but they're often quite static and quite sort of acting as models, acting as as people. And the the youth, being young in France in the 70s is represented in such an interesting way in cinema. I mean, I think I'm thinking a little later, but like The Devil, probably the Brisson Mm -hmm. film from like 1981, where most of the actors, like they feel like they're the stereotype of what Americans think of French people, which is they stand around looking listless and smoking. And like, there's a little bit of that in this film in the sense that like, People are Again, just kind of Add to that static. contemporary quality, too. Right. It's very contemporary. And Fabrice Lucchini is very contemporary. And uh, Anne-Marie, uh, excuse me. Anne- and Anne-Laray. Anne-Laurie Marie is sort of like the kind of whip snap little wise ass that she is in the later films as well. Yeah. He's not denying people their contempor-, contempor... He's not denying how contemporary people are right he's
0: or like it reminds you that people have always been the same
1: right and he's leaning into the idiosyncrasity of the setting and the mm, the the way the people in the film are like young awkward french teenagers and 20 something years i don't know how old Fabrice for is in this film but looks,
0: looks young though like early 20s yeah
1: and as a result and so this feels like it's a valuable lean into the final 20 minutes 20 minutes of this movie yeah. After we have our adventures with Gawan And I, I think like this might be an interesting, uh, I'm curious for your thoughts. So we then, the story is just like, now we go back to Percival and it suggests that I mean, Percival that's, has- That's like a
0: literal line from, yeah, that's, like, like, that, now, that's what the narration-
1: Meanwhile, back with Percival. But no, it, it literally brings you back. And, and what I am led to believe is that, and maybe I'm curious, is that Percival is experiencing a crisis of faith. Mm-hmm. He hasn't been in a church or prayed, and he's a very religious mm, five figure. Five years. Five years. And he meets uh, a group of devotional cat devoted Catholics who say it's Good Friday, and uh we are going having our sins absolved, absolved by a hermit. And he goes to this hermit, and early on in the film, what sets Lancelot. Excuse me, not Lancelot, what sets First of all, off on this adventure is how he views knights as like a god, mm-hmm. and yet, f- whatever amount of time later in the story it is several years, he's now a knight and he feels far away from God. He feels yeah. removed from God. He's yeah. he's you know trained under uh, a figure and fallen in love and done all these things, and yet he's so distanced from like the. The almighty or whatever you want to say well, right it, from it, the sacred and as, as it
0: relates to that too it's also about um the other person that he's been distanced from is his mother so like in the beginning who of has the movie died who has died and in the beginning of the movie you're introduced to to him discovering the knights so and then uh him and his mother And then he says goodbye to his mother, and that's when he begins his journey. But the mother is like the the kind of core central relationship that exists in his life prior to his journey.
1: And she wants to keep – we should have done this all at the beginning. (laughs) She wants to keep him away from the knights because she's lost a a husband
0: to – And brothers. And brothers, his Mm -hmm. brothers. So he's been but raised then, just like with the, without any of this knowledge.
1: He stays at somebody's house and he sees the Holy Grail, which is the the cup that Jesus and the disciples drank from, and the sphere that pierced his, Jesus' side when he was crucified. And he said nothing about it. And because he said nothing about it, the old infirm man in the home that he was in—who's his passed. uncle? Yeah, apparently his uncle. It's very confusing. Yeah. Um, he. So he's experienced this crisis of faith because he's learned all these lessons. He's learned to be brave. He's learned not to kill a defeated knight. He's learned not to speak unless absolutely necessary. He It's a little bit like Polonius telling Laertes and Hamlet what to do when he leaves, you know, neither a lender nor a borrower be. It mm-hmm. feels a little like Hamlet at a moment. But at this moment, at the end, he is, he's experienced a crisis of faith. He's lost his mother. He's a knight now. He certainly doesn't feel godly. Like he does have a journey and he goes and he sees this night i'm sorry this hermit and they talk about jesus and then i believe he goes to it we are then witness the last 10 minutes are a passion play which is a staged version of the crucifixion of christ that often happens on good friday two days before easter uh, if you go to church as a as a person, you either see this or you, you know, Good Friday is, not, Good Friday, not a good day for Catholics, right? <laughs> it's a tough one. And I remember going to church as a kid. I don't go anymore, but I remember going as a kid with my mom and being kind of like, oh, this is like this. There's no music on Good Friday. You just kind of stand in the church and you. And, uh,
0: and they put on a performance of the crucifixion. Of the crucifixion.
1: And that's, well, they don't, they didn't, like some churches, there are churches in the world where they fucking crucify people. Mm-hmm. Like they really go for it. Um. But not where, not where I went to church. And if they did, it was a very minor. I mean, they, basically every mass you ever go to is a recreation of the crucifixion, right? But the final 10 minutes of this film is a restaging of the crucifixion in a church with singing. And the film cuts between sort of the, the narrator singing the story and the representation of it. And the actor who is crucified is the same actor who plays, the, the actor who is Jesus, who's crucified in the scene, is Percival.
0: Yeah. How do you, so like, when uh, right before we see that scene, the hermit says uh, something along the lines of like you need to repent, right? And then yeah. we then we cut to this scene over here, and so I guess the way I'm taking this movie is like this is the the imagining of that scene with him going through the the the, the trial that. That Jesus trials. has gone through. Yeah. Um and like that's his w- sort of way and of And the life.
1: stations of the cross, as mm-hmm. they're often
0: called. Yeah. Which is a
1: you know, a sort of pilgrimage to experience what Jesus
0: experienced. Right. right? To sort of like position himself for that repentance, you know, to, exactly. to, to, I to imagine a... himself in the way uh, which also kind of speaks a little bit to this character where there is like an arrogance to him as well. So it's not just like this uh repenting the way Jesus would, but like if this if we are reading this as him seeing himself in that way then it's like an extension of like that it's the way that story relates to him and how it's him going through that same journey.
1: Yes, I think you're exactly right. It's like a it's like he goes to Calvary yeah. in Hebrew Golgotha, which is where Jesus is crucified along with thieves. Now, in reality, Jesus was probably crucified with 45 people. There's a great book called Jesus of Nazareth written by great and noted Jesus scholar, Paul Verhoeven about the reality. Yep. About the reality. Paul Verhoeven, the great Dutch film director is also a Jesus scholar huh? and a very serious one. And the book, which I've read, which is wonderful. Uh, I guess I saw him, uh, talk about it and then screen life of Brian, his favorite movie. (sighs) um, uh, and and the you know the story of Jesus as told by the by the Catholic establishment so to speak, <laughs> is that he was crucified with two criminals, Barabbas, and I forget the other man's name, right? And um, in reality, he was probably crucified the way that a lot of people were, which is forty at a time on a hill, you know, in in outside of yeah. So. But yeah, what we see here is the passion play and Percival is personifying Jesus. And it's actually pretty disturbing, but I have to say, maybe this is the Catholic raised in me. I think it's the best part of the film. I think because it's a play within a play. So in other words, we've watched a play play out and then we go and experience a play within the story. And the thing that's beautiful and the thing that sort of gets against the description of Wikipedia when it's like, we also witness the crucifixion of Christ, is we don't witness the crucifixion of Christ. The movie doesn't <laughs> flash back you know, whatever number 50, uh, 1200 years, yeah. what it does is represented in a medieval period, so he's recreating a medieval passion play for the final ten minutes of his movie, and it's a play within a play, and the idea is that maybe uh Percival is, is repent has repented and, and mm-hmm. no longer has this crisis of faith based on the fact that he he's lost his mother and he's left a man to die. He has like gone through his. His uh, you know, I'm sort of forgetting the term, but like he he's grown up. It's it's yeah. a Bill Dung's romance, whatever you call that. A, a sort of a journey from youth, you know, like right, he's kind right, of grown right. up. Like, like, yeah, like
0: traveling around and discovering himself. It's a coming of age story. Yeah, it's a coming um, of age story. In a lot of ways, I think this is an extension of the moral tales too. You know, it's ultimately a story of like this man, this young yep. man, discovering his morality and um. Coming uh, to terms with things that uh, the way he thought the world was, and the way he, uh, the actions he thought he was supposed to make, and um, through a Catholic lens, uh, uh, through a Catholic lens, and understanding like what um, what life really is.
1: You know who I would love to hear talk about this movie, Martin Scorsese,
0: because oh, I think yeah. this is
1: like a profound work of Catholic art. Yeah. Um, it's also the style and the, you know, we've talked a lot about how it feels like a play, how we're at a remove, how the actors are presenting in a Romanesque style with their hands, how all these things are happening. And I think is that he's trying to achieve a kind of holy, reverential feeling, but an anachronistic one in that he's yeah. not expecting the audience to commune with yeah. the themes of repentance and sacrifice and all of the Catholic... Mm-hmm. but. Rather representing that as closely as it can be to the way it would be perceived by people in medieval times, but through the lens of, like, modern filmic technique and what he can achieve.
0: Yeah, yeah. Yeah. It's uh, it's a real (coughs) interesting movie yeah <laughs> I, it's a uh, challenging movie it's a challenging you know? movie
1: i fell asleep watching it last night i had to rewind it i really passed yeah. out and i was kind of like and, and i i was not vibing with it i really yeah. wasn't now why was i not vibing with it because i was watching it at home uh it's a movie theater movie you know that's the experience that one should yeah. have of it it's very very hard to watch at home uh but i was also reminded i had a conversation with uh as hamra who did an episode about Percival for a different podcast Oh, uh, A.S. Harmer is a great film credit. Uh, uh, yeah, I meant uh,
0: personal. Hmm. Called oh, best adapted,
1: cool. best adapted podcast or something. I'll, I'll, I'll link it in yeah. there. And he once said to me, I was talking about uh, you know, how it's so easy to get distracted at home when you watch a movie or fall asleep, whatever. He's like, but you're supposed to do that in the movie theater too. Like movie, you're supposed to fall asleep in a movie theater. You're supposed to be distracted in a movie. Like that's real fucking life, that's, man. Right. Like, yeah, yeah. And so. I kind of walked into this like, I'm, this is gonna be a tough hang. I know it, but I, but I almost let it vibe and like let it play over me. And, and I woke up this morning with like an art hangover from it. I'm not saying I had a great time watching it. I don't think I'll ever watch it again. I'm not a Catholic film scholar, so I probably won't explore it. I am interested in it from like a, film theater thing in the way that Mm -hmm. I love films like dogville or other pieces of cinema that are kind of filmic and austere, but, uh, not, a like a pleasant experience of a movie.
0: Yeah. 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 yeah, yeah. Um, it's a movie that again, I can, I appreciate it. I'm interested in it. Uh, I can't say that I love it. I can't say that I really like it, but it's a movie that I think is absolutely fascinating and particularly through the lens of like film theater. Um, uh, anachronistic sort of filmmaking qualities. Um, it's well, it's uh, also
1: advanced Romero studies. It's, it's like Romare, Romare 500. Romare yeah, if like you're, it's kind of nuts. This is our fifth movie or whatever.
0: Totally, but I think it makes it's it's a good one to have in context for the production methods for what will kind of come next. Like I really feel like this is like a turning point movie in his career. And then,
1: yeah, and. It's also we talked we talked about what is Romerian and auteurism and, and the theory of auteur cinema how that and that, how that evolved out of the the writing that he led the charge on at yeah. Cahiers du Cinema in the 1950s it doesn't get more auteurist cinema than yeah. this you know yeah. There, in the in the book here that I have, the biography, they basically say at the end of the chapter on Percival, like he did nothing to make this movie commercial or likable. Like nothing about this movie is like gives its audience any. uh, It's not even beautiful, really, to look at. Right, right. It's kind of like 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 Bellatar Tarr makes long fucking movies, but every shot is like exquisite. Right, like it's hard to look at stare. You can stare at Satan Tank all eight hours of Satan Tank. The first thing I
0: thought when I was watching this was. Oh, this reminds me of what I remember things on PBS looking like when I was a kid. Yeah. You know, just like like a like a public access film theater thing is the first thing. Or,
1: or like a movie from it. 1955 that like like the Ten Commandments. It looks shittier than like the Ten Commandments, but it has some of the same matte painting and stylistic mm-hmm. choices. I mean, look behind me right now. You know, like that's that's what the movie looks like. Yeah. Like that's a tree. That's my microphone. That's a tree. And that's Percival. And that's his horse. And they're really riding horses on like a soundstage in like France. It's bizarre. It's a strange fucking movie, but pretty. I think you're right. I think it's essential to understanding Eric Romer.
0: Yeah, absolutely. Um, If you're following this along with uh, the podcast and watching all these movies, um, I don't know if Percival is. The movie that you should watch if you're watching along with uh, with us. Uh, don't, start as you go. don't start here. Don't start here. And uh, don't even listen to this episode. <laughs> I'd say this is a, this is one for like if you really really want to watch an interesting curiosity um, that illuminates aspects of who he is as a person and um, the way he would approach bring his style and approach to doing a movie like this. Um, it is completely unlike all his other movies. And I'd say this is definitely for the Romere fan that like really wants to get in deep. And yet, it's preoccupied with youth
1: and naivete and uh, people figuring themselves out and mm-hmm. feeling awkward and shamed and unusual and strange. It is it is an essential movie, but it is not like a blast and a... Uh, I think, yeah, it's really, it's really, it's, it's a tough thing. I don't disagree, but I, I also think it's unlike his movies and yet it's exactly like a lot of his other movies. Totally, And there's a census totally. of Cinema article that I posted in the notes that you can share when you write up the show notes for the episode. Um, but like uh, an essential movie and not one that I'm like dying to watch again, but uh, one that I like deeply, deeply admire. What's next?
0: Um, should we wrap it up?
1: let's wrap it up baby yeah. next this time is a long on the episode. show yeah well no actually it's yeah, not right. that's out the funny it. thing no it's not sean uh next time it's about the length of the other ones next time on the show the, Le green, ray. the green ray which comes out six years eight years after this 1986? 1986 1986 1986 um i'm on twitter and Still, uh, we'll, we'll see what happens uh, with Elon in charge. I don't know. I gotta get off there. Uh, but I'm on Twitter, Liam G. Billingham. You can also follow the podcast uh, at Uverbusters on Instagram. Sean's on Instagram. He posts a lot of good
0: stuff. Go on. Uh, yep. Yeah. On Instagram, I am the Brown Sean, and uh, Romercast handle is at Romercast.
1: And follow us both on Letterboxd, where I want to attempt to write up some thoughts about this movie. And I'm making a list. Every film that we watch, I add to my, the list. I'm making a list of Eric Romare movies. <laughs> Gonna add them all so that people can follow along. <laughs> I am going to add to the list. Kind of made that up.
0: Romare R us. <laughs> that's, that's, that's what
1: the podcast is. Uh, no, this has been Romarecast. Thanks for listening to this episode. Please rate, review, subscribe to the show wherever you do those things. Romericast.com
0: Adieu 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 (laughs) Adieu